Hello, and welcome to Fast Asleep, and thank you for being here. Hey, if you are like many of our listeners, you're a fan of Daphne du Maurier. Uh-huh, I thought so. She's a real favorite on this pod- podcast. We've done The Birds and My Cousin Rachel, and you can go back and check them out anytime. Um, Mr. Maurier was one of three daughters, did you know? born to a prominent actor and actress. She actually had many literary connections and it really did help her get her career started. And another not 100% positive thing about Du Maurier was that when she was first published, she was not taken seriously by the critics at all. But uh, it, it kind of worked out for her, you know what I mean? She has definitely earned her reputation now as a fine craftsman of suspense. And the story that we're about to bring to you is no different. Um, It will involve three episodes of Fast Asleep. Uh, And like so many of Mr. Maurier's stories, this one too was turned into a movie. Made in 1973, or at least released in 1973, starring Donald Sutherland, oh, and the beautiful Julie Christie. You may be able to still see this movie now. As a matter of fact, I know you'll see this movie now. It's available. Just Google it and you'll find out how. Anyway, instead of doing all that, you're here now. So just tuck in and enjoy part one of Don't Look Now. Don't look now, John said to his wife, but there are a couple of old girls, two tables away, trying to hypnotize me. Laura, quick on cue, made an elaborate pretense of yawning. and then tilted her head as though searching the skies for a non-existent aeroplane. Right behind you, he added. That's why you can't turn around at once. It'd be too, too obvious. Laura played the oldest trick in the world and dropped her napkin and then bent to scrabble for it under her feet, sending a shooting glance over her left shoulder as she straightened once again. She sucked in her cheeks the first telltale sign of suppressed hysteria and lowered her head. Oh, they're not old girls at all, she said. They're male twins in drag. Her voice broke ominously, the prelude to uncontrolled laughter, and John quickly poured some more Chianti into her glass. Pretend to choke, he said, and they won't notice. You know what it is? They're criminals, yeah, doing the sights of Europe, changing sex at each stop. (laughs) They're twin sisters here on Torcello, twin brothers tomorrow in Venice, or even tonight, parading arm in arm across the Piazza San Marco, just a matter of switching their clothes and their wigs. Hmm, jewel thieves or murderers, asked Laura. Oh, murderers, definitely, but why? Why, I asked myself, have they picked on me? The waiter made a diversion by bringing coffee and bearing away the fruit 
which gave time to Laura to banish hysteria and regain control. I can't think, she said, why we didn't notice them when we arrived. They stand out to high heaven. One couldn't fail. Ah, that gang of Americans. <laughs> Masked them, said John. And the bearded man with a monocle. Remember he looked like a spy? It wasn't until they all went just now that I saw the twins. Oh, God, the one with the shock of white hair has got her eye on me. Laura took the powder compact from her bag and held it in front of her face, the mirror acting as a reflector. I think it's me they're looking at, not you, she said. Oh, and thank heavens I left my pearls with the manager at the hotel. She paused, dabbing the sides of her nose with powder. The thing is, she said after a moment, we've got them wrong. They're neither murderers nor thieves. Oh, they're, they're a couple of pathetic old retired school mistresses on holiday. They've saved up all their lives to visit Venice. They come from some place with a name like, ah, uh, Wallabanga in Australia. And they're called uh, Tilly and Tiny. <laughs> Her voice, for the first time since they'd come away, took on the old bubbling quality he loved. And the worried frown between her brows had vanished. At last, he thought. At last, she's beginning to get over it. If I can keep this going, if we can pick up the familiar routine of jokes shared on holiday and at home. Well, the ridiculous fantasies about people at other tables or staying in the hotel or wandering in art galleries and churches. Hmm. Everything will fall back into place. Life will become as it was before. The wound will heal. And she will forget. You know, said Laura, that really was a very good lunch. I did enjoy it. Ah, oh, thank God, he thought. Thank God. Then he leant forward, speaking low, in a conspirator's whisper. One of them is going to the loo, he said. Do you suppose he uh, or she, uh, I don't know, is going to change her wig? Oh, don't say anything, Laura murmured. I'll follow her and find out. She may have a suitcase tucked away in there and she's going to switch clothes. She began to hum under her breath, the signal to her husband of content. The ghost was temporarily laid, and all because of the familiar holiday game abandoned too long, and now, through mere chance, blissfully recaptured. Is she on her way? asked Laura. About to pass our table now, he told her. Seen on her own, the woman was not so remarkable. Tall, angular, aquiline features with close-cropped hair, which was fashionably called an eaten crop, he seemed to remember, in his mother's day, and about her person, the stamp of 
that particular generation. Let's think, she would be in her middle 60s, he supposed. The shirt with little collar and tie and sports jacket, gray tweed skirt coming to mid-calf, gray stockings and laced black shoes. He had seen the type on golf courses and at dog shows, invariably not sporting breeds, but pugs. And if you came across them at a party in somebody's house, well, they were quicker on the draw with a cigarette lighter than he was himself, a mere male with pocket matches. The general belief that they kept house with a more feminine, fluffy companion, that was not always true, although nothing wrong with that. Frequently, they boasted and adored a golfing husband. No, no, no. The striking point about this particular individual was that there were two of them, identical twins cast in the same mold. The only difference was that the other one had whiter hair. Supposing, murmured Laura, when I find myself in the toilet beside her, she starts to strip. Oh, depends on what's revealed, John answered. Now, if she's uh, acting strangely in any way and makes a move towards you, bolt for the door. She probably has a hypodermic syringe concealed and she wants to knock you out before you have even reached it. (laughs) Laura sucked in her cheeks once more and began to shake. And then squaring her shoulders, she rose to her feet. I simply must not laugh, she said. Oh, and whatever you do, Don't look at me when I come back, especially if we come out together. She picked up her bag and strolled, very self-consciously, away from the table in pursuit of her prey. John poured the dregs of the Chianti into his glass and lit a cigarette. The sun blazed down upon the little garden of the restaurant. The Americans had left, and the monocled man, and the family party at the far end. All was peace. The identical twin was sitting back in her chair with her eyes closed. Oh, thank heaven, he thought, for this moment at any rate, when relaxation was possible. And Laura had been launched upon her foolish, harmless game. The holiday could turn into the cure she really needed, blotting out, if only temporarily, the numb despair that had seized her since the child died. She'll get over it, the doctor had said. They all get over it in time, and you have the boy. Well, I know, John had said, but the girl... She meant everything. She always did, right from the start. I don't know why. I suppose it was the difference in age. A boy of school age and a tough one at that is, well, someone on his own right. But not a baby of five. Laura literally adored her. Johnny and I were nowhere. Well, you give her time, repeated the doctor. Yes, give her time and... And anyway, you're both still young. There'll be others. Another daughter. Oh, so easy to talk. 
How to replace the life of a loved, lost child with a dream. He knew Laura too well. Another child? Another girl? Well, she would have her own qualities, a separate identity. She might even induce hostility because of this very fact. A usurper in the cradle, in the cot that had been Christine's? A chubby flaxen, replica of Johnny, not the little waxen, dark-haired sprite that had gone. He looked up over his glass of wine, and, oh, the woman, the woman was staring at him again, and it was not the casual, idle glance of someone at a nearby table waiting for her companion to return, Mm-mm. but something deeper, more intent. The prominent light blue eyes oddly penetrating, giving him oof, a sudden feeling of discomfort. Damn the woman! Oh, all right, bloody stare if you must. Two can play at that game. He blew a cloud of cigarette smoke into the air and smiled at her. He hoped offensively. She did not register. The blue eyes continued to hold his so that he was, yeah, he was obliged to look away himself. He extinguished his cigarette, glanced over his shoulder for the waiter, and called for the bill. Settling for this and fumbling with the change and a few casual remarks about the excellence of the meal brought composure but a prickly feeling on his scalp remained and an odd sensation of unease. Mm, And then it went. It went as abruptly as it had started and stealing a furtive glance at the other table, he saw that her eyes were closed again and she was sleeping or dozing as she had done before. The waiter disappeared all was still. Laura, he thought, glancing at his watch. Oh, she's being a hell of a time. Ten minutes at least. (laughs) Well, something to tease her about anyway. (laughs) He began to plan the form the joke would take. How the old dolly had stripped to her smalls, suggesting that Well, Laura should do likewise. And then the manager had burst in upon them both, exclaiming his horror and the reputation of the restaurant damaged. The hint that unpleasant consequences might follow unless... Well, the whole exercise turned out to be a plant, an exercise in blackmail, and he and Laura and the twins were to be taken to the police back to Venice for questioning. Quarter of an hour. Oh my gosh, it's been a quarter of an hour. Oh, come on, Laura, come on. There was a crunch of feet on the gravel. Laura's twin walked slowly past, alone. She crossed over to her table and stood there a moment, her tall, angular figure interposing itself between John and her sister. She was saying something, but He couldn't quite catch the words. What was that accent, though? Scottish, maybe? Then she bent 
offering an arm to the seated twin, and they moved away together across the garden to the break in the little hedge beyond. The twin, who had stared at John, leaning on her sister's arm. Oh, well, here was the difference again. She was not quite so tall, and she stooped more. Oh, perhaps she was arthritic. They disappeared out of sight, and John, becoming impatient, got up and was about to walk back to the hotel when Laura emerged. Well, I must say you took your time, he said, and then he stopped because of the expression on her face. What's the matter? What happened? he asked. He could tell at once there was something wrong almost as if she were in a state of shock. She, well, well, she blundered towards the table that he had just vacated and sat down. He drew up a chair beside her, taking her hand. Darling, what is it? Tell me, are you ill? She shook her head and then turned and looked at him. The dazed expression he had noticed at first had given away to one of dawning confidence, almost exultation. It's quite wonderful, she said slowly. The most wonderful thing that could possibly be. You see, she isn't dead. She's still with us. And that's why they kept staring at us, those two sisters. They could see Christine. Oh, God, he thought. It's what I've been dreading. She's going off her head. What do I do? How do I cope? Now, now, Laura, sweets, he began forcing a smile. Look, um... Uh, sh shall we go? I've paid the bill. We can go and look at the cathedral and stroll around. And then it will be time to take off in that launch again for Venice. She wasn't listening. Or at any rate, the words didn't penetrate. John, love, she said. I've got to tell you what happened. I followed her as we planned into the toilet place. She was combing her hair, and I went into the loo and then came out and washed my hands in the basin. She was washing hers in the next basin, and suddenly she just turned and said to me in a strong Scots accent, Don't be unhappy any more. My sister has seen your little girl. <sighs> she was sitting between you and your husband laughing. Darling, I thought I was going to faint. I nearly did, and luckily there was a chair, and I sat down in the woman while she bent over me and patted my head. I'm not sure of her exact words, but she said something about um, the moment of truth and joy, joy being as sharp as a sword, but not to be afraid. All was well, but the sister's vision, why it had been so strong, well, they just knew I had to be told and that Christine wanted it. Oh, John. Oh, John. Don't, 
Don't look at me like that. I swear, I'm not making it up. And this is what she told me. It's, it's all true. The desperate urgency in her voice made his heart sicken. Well, he had to play along with her, agree, soothe, do anything to bring back some sense of calm. Laura, uh, darling, uh, well, of course I believe you, he said. Only it's, uh, it's sort of a shock. And well, I'm upset because you're upset. But I'm not upset, she interrupted. I'm happy. I'm so happy that, well, I can't even put the feeling into words. You know what it's been like these weeks, at home, everywhere, everywhere we've been on holiday, although I tried to hide it from you. But now, it's lifted, because I know, I just know, that the woman, she was right. Oh, Lord. Oh, how awful of me. I've forgotten their name. She did tell me. You see, well, the thing is, she's a retired doctor that's come from Edinburgh, and the one who saw Christine, well, she, she went blind a few years ago, although she studied the occult all her life and, and has been very psychic. It's only since going blind that she really has seen things, you know, like a medium. They've had the most wonderful experiences, but to describe Christine as the blind one did to her sister, why, even down to that little blue and white dress with the puff sleeves that she wore at her birthday party. And, oh, and to say she was smiling happily. Oh, darling, darling, it made me so happy, I think I'm going to cry. There was no hysteria, nothing wild. She took a tissue from her bag and blew her nose, smiling at him. I'm all right, you see? You don't have to worry. Neither of us need to worry about anything anymore. Give me a cigarette. He took one from his packet and lighted it for her. She sounded normal, herself again, and she wasn't trembling. And if this sudden belief was going to keep her happy, well, he couldn't possibly begrudge it. But, oh, but he wished all the same that it hadn't happened. There was something uncanny about thought reading, about telepathy. Scientists couldn't account for it. Nobody could. And this is what must have happened just now between Laura and the sisters. Huh. So the one who had been staring at him was blind. That accounted for the fixed gaze which somehow was unpleasant in itself. Creepy. Oh, hell, he thought. Oh, I wish we hadn't come here for lunch. Just chance. A flick of a coin between this, Torcello, and driving to Padua. And we had to choose Torcello. You didn't arrange to meet them again or anything, did you? He asked, trying to sound casual. Oh, no, darling, why should I? Laura asked. I mean, well, there really was nothing more they could tell me. The sister had had her wonderful vision, and, well, that was that. Anyway, they're moving on. Funnily enough, it's rather like our original game. They are going round the world, 
before returning to Scotland. Only I said Australia before, didn't I? Oh, the old dears. Anything less like murderers and jewel thieves. Yeah, she had quite recovered. She stood up and looked about her. Come on, she said. Having come to Torcello, we must see the cathedral. They made their way from the restaurant across the open piazza where the stalls had been set up with scarves and trinkets and postcards and so along the path to the cathedral. One of the ferry boats had just decanted a crowd of sightseers, many of whom had already found their way into Santa Maria Assunta. Laura, undaunted, asked her husband for the guidebook and, as had always been her custom in happier days, started to walk slowly through the cathedral, studying mosaics, columns, panels from left to right, while John, really less interested, because of his concern at what had just happened, followed close behind, keeping a weather eye alert for the twin sisters. There was no sign of them. Perhaps they had gone into the church of Santa Fosca close by. A sudden encounter would be embarrassing, quite apart from the effect it might have upon Laura. But the anonymous, shuffling tourists, intent upon culture, mm -mm, they could not harm her. Although from his own point of view, they made artistic appreciation pretty much impossible. He could not concentrate. The cold, clear beauty of what he saw left him untouched. And when Laura touched his sleeve, pointing to the mosaic of the Virgin and Child, standing above the frieze of the Apostles, he nodded in sympathy, yet really saw nothing. The long, sad face of the Virgin, infinitely remote. And then, turning on sudden impulse, stared back over the heads of the tourists towards the door, where frescoes of the blessed and the damned gave themselves to judgment. Oh, the twins. The twins were standing right there, the blind one still holding on to her sister's arm, her sightless eyes fixed firmly upon John. Oh, he felt himself held actually unable to move and an impending sense of doom of tragedy came upon him his whole being sagged as it were in apathy and he thought this is the end there is no escape no future and then both sisters turned and went out of the cathedral, and the sensation vanished, vanished, leaving indignation in its wake and rising anger. How dare those two old fools practice their mediumistic tricks on him? Why, well, it was fraudulent and unhealthy. This was probably the way they lived, touring the world, making everyone they met uncomfortable. Give them half a chance and, well, they would have gotten money out of Laura. Anything. He felt her tugging at his sleeve again. Isn't she beautiful? So happy and so serene. Who, what? He asked. The Madonna, 
she answered. She has a magic quality. It goes right through to one. Don't you feel it too? Uh, I suppose so. I mean, I don't know. Ah, oh, really, there are too many people around. She looked up at him, astonished. What? Well, what's that got to do with it? Oh, how funny you are. Well, all right. Let's get away from them. I want to buy some postcards anyway. Disappointed, she sensed his lack of interest and began to thread her way through the crowd of tourists to the door. Come on, he said abruptly once they were outside. You know there's plenty of time for postcards. Why don't we explore a bit? And he struck off from the path, which would have taken them back to the center where the little houses were and the stalls and the drifting crowd of people, to a narrow way, almost, ooh, it was almost amongst uncultivated ground beyond which he could see a sort of cutting or canal. Mm. The sight of water, limpid and pale, was a soothing contrast to the fierce sun above their heads. I don't think this leads anywhere much, said Laura, and it's a bit muddy, too. One can't sit. Besides, there are more things the guidebook says we ought to see. Oh, forget the book, he said impatiently, and pulling her down beside him on the bank above the cutting, he put his arms round her. It's the wrong time of day for sightseeing. Hey, look, over there, there's a rat swimming right on the other side. He picked up a stone and threw it in the water and the animal sank or somehow disappeared and nothing was left but bubbles. Oh, don't, said Laura. Oh, that's cruel. Poor thing. And then suddenly putting her hand on his knee, she said, do you think Christine is sitting right here beside us? Oh, he did not answer, not at once. What was there to say? Would it be like this forever? I expect so, he said slowly. If you feel she is, the point was, remembering Christine before the onset of the fatal meningitis. <laughs> she would have been running along the bank excitedly, throwing off her shoes, wanting to paddle, giving Laura a fit of apprehension. Sweetheart, take care, come back. The woman said that she was looking so happy sitting beside us and smiling, said Laura. She got up, brushing her dress. Her mood changed to restlessness. Come on, let's go back, she said. He followed her with a sinking heart. He knew she did not really want to buy postcards or to see what remained to be seen. She wanted to go in search of the women again, not necessarily to talk, but just to be near them. When they came to the open place by the stalls, he noticed that the crowd of tourists had thinned. There were only a few stragglers left, and the sisters were not amongst them. They must have joined the main body who had come to Torcello by the ferry service. A wave of relief seized him. Hey, look, there's a mass of postcards at the second stall. 
and some eye-catching headscarves. Hmm. Let me buy you a headscarf. Darling, I've so many, she protested. Don't waste your lira. Oh, it isn't a waste. And I'm in a buying mood. Hey, what about a basket? You know, we never have enough baskets. Or some lace. How about lace? She allowed herself, laughing, to be dragged to the stall while he rumpled through the goods spread out before them and chatted up the smiling woman who was selling her wares, his ferociously bad Italian making her smile the more. He knew it would give the body of tourists more time to walk to the landing stage and catch the ferry service. And the twin sisters would be out of sight and out of their lives. Never, said Laura, some 20 minutes later, has so much junk been piled into so small a basket. <laughs> Her bubbling laugh reassuring him that all really was well. He needn't worry any more, and the evil hour had passed. The launch from Cipriani that had brought them from Venice was waiting by the landing stage. The passengers who had arrived with them, the Americans, the man with the monocle, were already assembled. Earlier, before setting out, he had thought the price for lunch and transport there and back decidedly steep. Now, he grudged none of it, except that, well, the outing to Torcello itself had been one of the major errors of this particular holiday in Venice. They stepped down into the launch, finding a place in the open, and the boat chugged away, down the canal and into the lagoon. The ordinary ferry had gone before, steaming towards Murano, while their own craft headed past San Francesco del Deserto, and so back direct to Venice. He put his arm around her once more, holding her close. And this time, she responded, smiling up at him, her head on his shoulder. It has been a lovely day, she said. I shall never forget it, never. You know, darling, now at last, I can begin to enjoy our holiday. He wanted to shout with relief. It is going to be all right, he decided. Let her believe what she likes. It really doesn't matter. It makes her happy. The beauty of Venice rose before them, sharply outlined against the glowing sky. And there was still so much to see. Wandering there together, they might now be perfect because of her change of mood the shadow having lifted, and aloud, he began to discuss the evening to come. Where they would dine? Where would they dine? Uh-uh, not the restaurant they usually went to, near the Fennis Theater, mm -mm. but somewhere different, somewhere new. Yes, but it must be cheap, she said, falling in with his mood, because we've already spent so much today. Their hotel, by the Grand Canal, had a welcoming, comforting air. 
The clerk smiled as he handed over their key. The bedroom was familiar, like home, with Laura's things arranged neatly on the dressing table. But with it, the little festive atmosphere of strangeness, of excitement, that only a holiday bedroom brings. This is ours for the moment, just the moment, and no more. While we are in it, we bring it life. When we have gone, it no longer exists. It fades into anonymity. He turned on both taps in the bathroom, the water gushing into the bath, the steam rising. Now, he thought afterwards, now at last is the moment to make love. And he went back into the bedroom, and she understood and opened her arms and smiled. Such blessed relief after all those weeks of restraint. The thing is, she said later, fixing her earrings before the looking glass, I'm not really terribly hungry. Shall we just be dull and eat in the dining room here? God, no, he exclaimed. With all those dreary couples at other tables? No, I'm ravenous. I'm also gay. I want to get rather sloshed. Oh, not bright lights and music, surely. Mm -mm, no, some small, dark, intimate cave. Rather sinister, full of lovers with other people's wives. Hmm, sniffed Laura. We all know what that means. You'll spot some Italian lovely of 16 and smirk at her through dinner while I'm stuck high and dry with a beastly man's broad back. They went out laughing into the warm, soft night, and the magic, the magic was about them everywhere. Let's walk, he said. Let's walk and work up an appetite for our gigantic meal. And inevitably, they found themselves by the molo and the lapping gondolas dancing upon the water. The lights everywhere blending with the darkness. There were other couples strolling for the same sake of aimless enjoyment, backwards, forwards, purposeless. Oh, and the inevitable sailors in groups, noisy, gesticulating, and dark-eyed girls whispering, clicking on high heels. Now the trouble is, said Laura. Walking in Venice becomes compulsive once you start. Oh, just over the bridge, you say. Just over the next bridge. And then the next one beckons. And I'm sure there are no restaurants down here. We're almost at those public gardens where they hold the Biennale. Well, let's turn back. I know there's a restaurant somewhere near the Church of San Zaccaria. There's a little alleyway that leads right to it. I'll tell you what, said John. 
If we go down here by the arsenal and cross that bridge at the end and head left, we will come upon San Zacharia from the other side. Remember we did it the other morning. Well, yes, but it was daylight then. We may lose our way. It's not very well lit. Ah, don't fuss. You know I have an instinct for these things. They turned down the Fondamenta del Arsenal and crossed the little bridge short of the arsenal itself and so on past the church of San Martino. There were two canals ahead, one bearing right and the other left, with narrow streets beside them. Hmm. John hesitated. Which one was it? Which one was it that they had walked beside the day before? Uh-huh, you see, protested Laura. We shall be lost, just as I said. Nonsense, replied John firmly. It's the left-hand one. I remember the little bridge. The canal was narrow. The houses on either side seemed to close in upon it. And in the daytime, with the sun's reflection on the water and the windows of the houses open, bedding upon the balconies, a canary singing in a cage, there had been an impression of warmth, of secluded shelter. Now, almost in darkness, the windows of the houses shuddered, the water dank. The scene appeared altogether different neglected, poor, and the long narrow boats moored to the slippery steps of the cellar entrances? Well, they looked like coffins. I swear I don't remember this bridge, said Laura, pausing and holding on to the rail, and I don't like the look of that alleyway beyond. Well, there's a lamp halfway up, John told her. I know exactly where we are, not far from the Greek quarter. They crossed the bridge and were about to plunge into the alleyway when, when they heard the cry. It came, surely, from one of the houses on the opposite side. But which one? It was impossible to say. With the shutters closed, each one of them seemed dead. They turned and stared in the direction from which the sound had come. Was it? whispered Laura. Uh, some drunk or other, said John briefly. Come on. Less like a drunk than someone being strangled and the choking cry suppressed as the grip held firm. We ought to call the police, said Laura. Oh, for heaven's sake, said John. Where did she think she was? Piccadilly? Well, I'm off. It's sinister, she replied, and began to hurry away up the twisting alleyway. John hesitated. His eye, caught by a small figure which suddenly crept from a cellar entrance below one of the opposite houses and then jumped into a narrow boat below. It, it was a child, a little girl. Well, she couldn't have been more than five or six. 
wearing a short coat over her minute skirt, a pixie hood covering her head. There were four boats moored, line upon line, and she proceeded to jump from one to the other with surprising agility, intent, it would seem, upon escape. Now once her foot slipped, and he caught his breath, for she was within a few feet of the water, losing her balance, and then, well, she recovered and hopped to the furthest boat. Bending, she tugged at the rope, which had the effect of swinging the boat's after end across the canal, almost touching the opposite side. And another cellar entrance, about 30 feet from the spot where John stood watching her. Then the child jumped again, landing upon the cellar steps and vanished into the house, the boat swinging back into mid-canal behind her. The whole episode could not have taken more than four minutes. Then he heard the quick patter of feet. Laura had returned. She had seen none of it, for which he felt unspeakably thankful. The sight of a child, a little girl, in what must have been near danger. Her fear that the scene he had just witnessed was in some way a sequel to that alarming cry. Well, it might have had a disastrous effect on her overwrought nerves. What are you doing? she called. I daren't go on without you. The wretched alley branches in two directions. Oh, I'm sorry, he told her. I'm coming. He took her arm, and they walked briskly along the alley. John, with an apparent confidence he did not possess, there were no more cries, were there? She asked. No, he said. No, nothing, I tell you. That was just some drunk. The alley led to a deserted compo behind a church, not a church he knew, and he led the way across along another street and over a further bridge. Now, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute, he said. I think we take this right-hand turning. It will lead us into the Greek quarter. The Church of San Giorgio is somewhere over there. She did not answer. She was beginning to lose faith. The place was like a maze. They might circle round and round forever and then find themselves back again near the bridge where they had heard that cry. Doggedly, he led her on. And then, surprisingly and with relief, he saw people walking in the lighted street ahead. And there, there was a spire of a church. The surroundings became familiar. There! I told you, he said, that's San Zaccaria. We found it all right, and your restaurant can't be far away. And anyway, there would be other restaurants, somewhere to eat, at least here was the cheering glitter of lights, of movement, canals beside which people walked, the atmosphere of tourism. Oh, the letters Ristorante in blue lights 
shone like a beacon down a left-hand alley. Ah, is this your place? he asked. God knows, she said, and who cares? Let's feed there anyway. And so, into the sudden blast of heated air and a hum of voices, the smell of pasta, wine, waiters, jostling customers, laughter. For two, this way, please. Why, he thought, was one's British nationality always so obvious? A cramped little table and an enormous menu scribbled in an indecipherable mauve-colored bureau with the waiter hovering, expecting the order forthwith. Ah, two very large Camparis with soda, John said, and then we'll study the menu. He was not going to be rushed. He handed the bill of fare to Laura and looked about him. Hmm, hmm, mostly Italians. Oh, that meant the food would be good. And then he saw them at the opposite side of the room, the twin sisters. And that's all of part one. Tune in again for part two and three. Good night.